0: You could say that our justice system responds to harm with more harm. Uh, If I cause you harm, uh, I have created an imbalance in the scales of justice. The only way to rebalance is for me to be caused harm.
1: Welcome to Bordier, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm Skylar Dom, and this week I talked with Fania Davis, a lifelong civil rights activist and former civil rights attorney who then discovered the power of restorative justice. She is the founder of Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, and she came to campus to talk about the paradigm shift that restorative justice requires and the transformative potential it could have. I started off our conversation just asking for a basic definition of what restorative justice is.
0: OK. Um, so restorative justice, uh, first of all, is um, a worldview, a set of uh, principles, a philosophy. It is also a theory of justice that involves bringing together everyone affected by wrongdoing to affect needs, obligations, and to heal the harm that was caused by the crime or wrongdoing to the degree possible. Um, so it's important to understand that it's more than a conflict resolution method. Many people think of restorative justice as just that. Many people think of restorative justice as another form of alternative dispute resolution uh, of which we've seen many uh, cropping up over the last decades uh, out of the, born out of the frustration of uh, people with the dysfunction of our criminal justice system. Whether it's community service or uh, mediation or arbitration uh, those are important uh, developments and alternatives um, to the adversarial justice system, but they differ from restorative justice and that restorative justice actually uh, challenges the uh, fundamental assumptions and the dominant discourse about justice. How so? It what would be the assumptions that it challenges and how? So... Uh, Our justice system sees um, crime as violation of uh, laws. Restorative justice sees crime as violation of relationships. Um, Restorative justice cares about broken lives. Our justice justice system cares more about broken laws. Um, And generally, uh, you could say that our justice system responds to harm with more harm. If I cause you harm, uh, I have created an imbalance in the scales of justice. The only way to rebalance is for me to be caused harm. Um, There's a reproduction of harm. Restorative justice seeks to uh, uh, heal. It seeks to break those cycles of harm. Because we know that when people are harmed, if they're not healed from that harm, they're likely to go on and either harm themselves or harm others. So our retributive justice system sets into motion, you could say, an endless cycle of harm. Restorative justice seeks to uh, interrupt those cycles of harm and actually uh, uh, set off cycles of healing. So we say that if harm people, harm other people then heal people will heal other people. Uh, so, and you you know you could say that our uh, justice system tends to damage relationships, shatter relationships because it is adversarial. Restorative justice above all, wants to heal relationships and repair damage to relationships. So those are just some of the ways in which you could say that uh, restorative justice invites a paradigm shift in the way that we think about and do justice. And you talked earlier about the questions that restorative justice asks, and you could say that our justice system asks what law was broken, Who broke it? What punishment is deserved? Our whole criminal justice system can be summed up in that way. What Mm -hmm. law was broken, who broke it, and what punishment is is deserved? Restorative justice asks, who was harmed? And what are the needs and responsibilities or obligations uh, of those affected by the harm? And how do all affected by the harm come together to address those needs and obligations and to heal the harm as much as possible? Those are the three questions that restorative justice asks. So that's at a very theoretical level or sort of
1: mission-based level. Um, How does that translate on the ground in your practice? I'm sure restorative justice looks different in different contexts, but can you describe what it looks like on the ground in in your work? Sure.
0: In the criminal justice context, I'll give you both uh, uh, a criminal justice uh, example and a school discipline example. Uh, In the criminal justice system, say, a young man um, commits arson, and this is based on a real case, um, and it's the favorite ice cream parlor uh, that's uh, the target of his act. Um, He could be tried for it in the criminal justice system. Um, He could be um, given a sentence of, uh, I don't know, depending on whether it's a first offense or not, uh, anywhere from two to five years, and depending on whether anyone got No one got hurt. It was property damage. Um, so he could have gone the regular criminal justice route, served his time, and not thought very much about the consequences of his harm, except to the extent that it means his life is ruined. Um, uh, but through the restorative justice um, process, um, uh, this might have happened and this is a variation on what actually happened in the case. So the owner of the ice cream parlor, family members of the young man, um, uh, customers of the ice cream shop and other neighbors come together in a circle process and there's a whole protocol that's followed uh, in these circles uh, to create a sense of community of deep connection, even across uh, uh, differences created by this grievous harm that has been caused. So there are relationship-building exercises, there are trust-building exercises, before we even get Mm -hmm. to discussion of the actual harm that occurs. But we definitely uh, talk about the harm. The young man gets to hear from the neighbors, from the uh, long-time customers, from the owner, you know how what you did hurt me, how it impacted me, the human consequences of what you did. He gets to hear that, you know, just in a close encounter with the persons uh, that he caused harm. And they, the others in the circle, may get to, to hear some of his story, you know, how he was abandoned by his parents and he was taken in by multiple foster families who abused him. and and. That will create some empathy um, um, in the hearts of those who were harmed. And mm-hmm. In hearing their stories about how they harmed him, he will uh, feel more empathetic. And then they will come to a point where they all decide what they need to do to repair. They will address needs, responsibilities, and come up with a plan to repair the harm to the degree possible. And in this particular case, what happened was that they decided that the young man would serve 200 hours, or maybe it was more, um, perhaps you know, more like 400, in the local hospital's burn ward, changing the bandages of people who had received very severe burns. Mm. That um, is a very transformative um, uh, plan, you know, to heal the harm. Uh, he's going to come out of that process a changed person, out of the circle, first of all, and then out of you know spending these hundreds of hours with people who um, were burned. Um, he'll come out a new person. Uh, so that's an example in the criminal justice system. Uh, it would have been very formulaic had it gone before a judge, you know. Um, and did the sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. Does the judge
1: um, when they come up with that? Uh, if the judge approves it. So the judge has to approve, and if he... Is that a, a, an agreement that they come to sort of mutually? They all come... What happens if one party there says, like, that's not...
0: No, I don't... That doesn't work for me. Uh, what happens in circles is that we make decisions based on consensus. That's one okay. of the five elements of the circle process. And it means that we all take ownership in the plan and the decision. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm 100% in agreement mm-hmm. with this uh, but I can live with it. Right, and you've That's bought into consensus. the process. You've sort of agreed to those five principles, I'm assuming, going oh, into it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. And the thing is, you don't have to... Uh, the, 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 I think the, the major point, though, is that uh, you just need to live with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, A person's Mm -hmm. not gonna come and saying, he needs to be arrested, he needs to spend five. That is not gonna happen in a a, because as you say, they buy into certain basic and uh, fundamental uh, assumptions about what we're trying to do. We're trying to heal, we're not trying to create another harm. Right. Um, We're trying to figure out how to, um, how to heal this harm to the degree possible, and how to prevent its recurrence. Mm. And, you know, how to bring about transformation on both sides.
1: So I also cut you off. You were about to talk about um, restorative justice in the educational context oh, as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: So uh, Tommy, 14 years old, ninth grader, um, is in his English class with his head down on the desk. Uh, the teacher, Ms. Jones, Tommy, sit up straight. Tommy doesn't move. She asks a second time, Tommy, sit up straight. He still doesn't move. Then she yells at him, the third time and with that he jumps out of his seat very aggressively uh, and very combatively and starts yelling at her and the yelling is uh, so loud it goes out into the hallways and security hears it, the principal hears it um, and the principal comes and and is ready to suspend Tommy because he's violated a rule Mm-hmm. What rule did he violate? The rule against cursing out teachers because he screams at her, he yells at her, he uses profanity. Um, and uh, what is the punishment? That's, these are the questions that punitive justice asks. Uh, the punishment is suspension and f- suspension for 10 days for cursing out a teacher. So the principal is ready to call security and give him the suspension slip and, and you know, send him out, send him, send him on his way. The restorative justice coordinator comes up and says, can I try something different, Mr. Principal? Um, And the young man at first is not having, it. he's not even wanting to talk to the restorative justice, he even takes a swing at the restorative justice coordinator. The restorative justice coordinator says, man, I'm just trying to help you, I'm trying to help you. Um, And I'll call your mother, you know, you call my mother, I don't care if you call my mother. And the restorative justice coordinator then asks a question, "Uh, are you Okay. And just that single question shifted the energy of the young man. He finally calmed down, and um, you know, he didn't say very much in that moment, but he was, it was clear uh, by his body language that he was not okay. Mm-hmm. And so the restorative justice coordinator, he says, let's go down to the restorative justice room and have a talk. And so uh, the restorative justice coordinator learns so that this young man, his mother, has been uh, absent for the last two or three nights and she's relapsed in all likelihood. Uh, she had been, you know, on rehabilitation. and But she hadn't been home for the last uh, two or three nights. And he had two siblings that he was helping to get dressed and get their breakfast and get them out to school. He was getting himself to school mm-hmm. uh, and he had his head on the desk because he hadn't been sleeping because he was so tired and he was so anxious. Um, And when the principal heard that story, he says, we were about to kick this child to the curb when what we should have done was give him a medal, you know. Um, So a restorative justice circle uh, happened um, in lieu of suspension. And in that circle, uh, the teacher got to hear his story. And, of course, that awakened a lot of empathy within her. And the teacher... Uh, told her story. She said that she had been actually assaulted two years before uh, by a young man, and she had been completely traumatized by that, and she thought that it was about to happen again, and she was going to quit school, and she was just so, you know, devastated by what had happened. So he got to hear her story. Mm -hmm. Uh, He apologized and asked what he could do to make amends, and they, the circle came up with a plan by consensus of what he could do to help. I think it was something simple like just helping her with chores for the next two weeks. And then the teacher uh, also uh, wanted to uh, take uh, make amends. And she says, well, the next time I see a young person um, you know, who obviously isn't well or is, who's obviously having some sort of problem, I'm not going to front them out in front of the whole class. I'm going to... Asked them, you know, let's go out and let me me talk to you. You don't seem to be doing well. Let's go out in the hall and let's have a discussion about this. Um, So, and the mother, the restorative justice coordinator, had tracked down the mother. And the mother took responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, And the school helped her to find uh, drug counseling. And um, then Tommy did well for the rest of of the year. And uh, that's just another example of how restorative justice uh, alternatives can look in the school system. Now, if he had been suspended, uh, as a ninth grader, uh, one suspension by the ninth grade will triple your chances of being incarcerated according to the UCLA Civil Rights Project study of a few years ago. It would double his chances of dropping out had he been suspended once. And had he dropped out, his chances of being incarcerated would have also, Significantly increased because seventy-five percent of the nation's inmates in state prisons are high school dropouts. Mm-hmm. So that's how restorative justice is beginning to interrupt uh, the school to prison pipeline as well. Mm-hmm.
1: So these are cases that you have um, seen or worked on in in Oakland through through your work. Can you talk a little right. bit about your the organization that you founded and I think recently left, but um, yes. and and sort of how you came to
0: this work? Mm -hmm. So how I came to this work. Um, I, let me start back uh, to my childhood really, because that's where it begins. Um, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which we there um, knew as Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I was raised literally in a neighborhood called Dynamite Hill. And, of course, this refers to the racial terrorism that was pervasive um, and, and during that time. That's in the 50s, 50s and 60s, um, in, in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, my, my city was called Bombingham uh, because of the frequency of bombings that targeted uh, civil rights activists' um, homes and churches. Um, And our neighborhood was called Dynamite Hill because um, we had moved into, our family was one of the first to have kind of broken the color line, moved into a neighborhood that was previously all white and other black families followed. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan and White Citizens Council planted bombs uh, to scare us away, uh, intimidate us. um, We were fortunate because our home uh, was never bombed, but homes around us were. My father uh, was part of an armed patrol of uh, other fathers in the neighborhood who would spend their nights awake uh, just on the lookout uh, for terrorists who may have been lurking. Um, um, and um, you know, many people know about a few bombings that happened in Birmingham, right, yeah. but they were happening all the time. And of course the one that's the most famous is the September 15th, 1963 Birmingham Civil Rights uh, I mean, sorry, Birmingham uh, Sunday School bombing, September 15th, 1963. I lost two very close friends in that bombing. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, one was uh, Cynthia Wesley, who lived just a few houses away from me, and the other was a close family friend, uh, Carol Robertson. And these events, uh, especially the latter event, uh, um, created in me this sort of, hmm, Irresistible uh, urge to be an agent for social transformation. And it sort of put me on a path as a warrior for justice. Um, and I'm still on that path in many ways, um, 70 years, well, well 60, 60 or so years later. Um. So I left the South, became involved in almost every major movement of my time, the Black Power movement, the Black Panther movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the anti-imperialist movement, and it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And I also became a civil rights trial lawyer. Um, um, When we were working with the Black Panther Party, my then-husband was almost killed because police invaded our home. Um, And then my sister, Angela Davis, was... um, Um, brought up on politically-motivated charges of capital murder and um, kidnapping and um, conspiracy. Um, And i traveled all over the world speaking on her behalf. Uh, There was a massive international movement uh, which was successful in freeing her, Uh, but I got to know some very good uh, criminal defense lawyers uh, through her case and they inspired me to go to law school. So I went to law school and uh, became a civil rights trial lawyer, and did that for 25 or so years. And um, and then around that time, I started to feel out of balance. I literally became ill, and uh, I knew intuitively that I was being asked to bring more healing and creative and uh, spiritual energies into my life. Because as a trial lawyer and as an activist, I was required to cultivate these hyper-masculinous, hyper-rational, and hyper-aggressive qualities, uh, which I knew that that wasn't really me. Uh, Yet, I was being that person because I was required to. uh, And so um, I knew that that was what was making me sick, basically. So I shut down my law office and synchronistically I found a PhD program that allowed me to study healing um, or to study with African traditional healers, especially one in particular in South Africa. And so I came back home, I finished the PhD degree and tried to do, wanted to do this more healing work. I didn't want to go back into the practice of adversarial law again. But I couldn't find any, uh, any remunerative work, and I had those student loans to pay. So Turns out, <laughs> remuneration is important. <laughs> yep, and so kicking and screaming, I went back into the practice of law. But the good thing is that shortly thereafter, I learned about restorative justice because a lawyer's organization invited me to a conference. Um, and once I found out about restorative justice, this justice that heals harm instead of replicating it, This justice that seeks to heal damaged relationships instead of damaging them further. This justice that cares more about broken lives and relationships than about broken laws. Uh, It was an epiphany for me. uh, And I felt for the first time that the lawyer, the healer, and the warrior in me could be one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can you talk about where you could see restorative justice moving in and um, replacing the traditional model and where it might not work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, starting with the latter question first. Um, First, the person causing harm needs to take responsibility as a prerequisite for a restorative justice process. We do not want a person who has been harmed to come into a circle uh, facing the person that's harmed them only to be reharmed. Only to be harmed again. So, in the criminal context, the
1: the future defense attorney in me is like, dur, 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 <laughs> dur. Um, yeah. so does does this sort of have to happen after uh, after the person who caused harm has pled guilty to what they're charged of, or do you think that there's a way to um, to take ownership like that in, in a world where there's also the potential for you know a traditional criminal proceeding to go on and...
0: and yeah, I think, yeah, I think it'll be a hybrid because, first of all, everybody's not going to take responsibility, mm-hmm. um, at least at the you know, initial stages of the judicial process, and those cases would not be uh, suitable for restorative justice. Mm-hmm. The persons who were innocent uh, as charged, they need to go through a trial process, an adversarial. That's what we have, and that's what they would need to go to to vindicate themselves. So that, that, that's already two big categories of cases where restorative justice would not be appropriate. For persons who have serious mental disorders, mm-hmm. who need more specialized uh, uh, professional health assistance, restorative justice uh, may not be appropriate as well. Um, now, that having been said, there are cases where uh, persons have, have been convicted, they may not have pled guilty, but they have been convicted of a crime. And I'm thinking in particular of a very famous video, it's called Meeting with the Killer, which you can find and look at free online. In that case, and this features a a victim, what they call a victim-offender dialogue. I say so-called victim-offender dialogue. I don't like to use the words, I prefer not to use the words victim and offender. Why is that? Uh, That's because um, it sort of reduces a person to the worst thing that ever happened to them or the worst thing that they've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, we are so much more than the worst things that we have done. And it also tends to draw a, a bright line between persons harmed and persons causing harm. When we know that very often persons who cause harm cause harm because they have been harmed. So there's no kind of absolute victim on the one side, an absolute. So for those reasons, and it's also about kind of dispensing with this binary way of perceiving the world. You know, and you learn that par excellence in law school. Good, bad, right, wrong, guilty, innocent. Um, Restorative justice understands that the world is much more complicated. Everything is related in this world, you know. And a person who is called a victim also have inside of them a, a person who is called a, um, uh, an offender. Mm-hmm. So that's those are the kinds of reasons that 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 lead me to um, prefer not to use those terms. Okay. Now sometimes it's unavoidable because one of the three major restorative justice models is called victim-offender dialogue or victim-offender mediation. So you you have to use the term there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was starting to talk about meeting with the killer, this video online, Um, a young woman was killed by a group of young men, and one of the young men who went through trial and was convicted and had served quite a bit of time, I can't remember how long, um, ended up meeting with the uh, family members, the mother and the daughter of this woman that they had had killed. Uh, So that happened uh, post-disposition, so he'd been found guilty but hadn't been sentenced yet? Had been sentenced, hadn't served his sentence. Okay, got it. So I, post-disposition <coughs> usually means he's released and everything's done. But, right. Um, but so there he meets with the family members, and that's a way of, of doing restorative justice alongside you know, criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting, public defenders are very often more wary about restorative justice than even prosecutors, it's it's really interesting because, you know, public defenders are are guardians of, of you know, the, uh, he has the right not to speak, you know, he has Miranda rights and don't say anything, you know, don't admit responsibility for him. Um, and public defenders are so um, rooted in that rights paradigm, you know, which which is, I guess, which, which restorative justice kind of offers an alternative to, you know. It, it shifts that rights paradigm you know, to a paradigm of uh, connection and community mm-hmm. and restoring the harm to the fabric of community that has been caused by crime.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, rights are also kind of like a, a, a way to hold off um, we're strong arm the system from kind of overwhelming uh, someone who's charged right. with a crime, and right. and and you're talking about a, a sort of coming in and embracing that person exactly. and and bringing them in. So it's it's a I could see how that would be a really difficult paradigm shift for the uh, um, defense attorneys for right. prosecutors. You said you they are a little bit more on board, or why <laughs> yeah, I'm does? not
0: sure why. Um, Maybe partly because they see the same kids over and over and over again, and they're just really frustrated, you know. Um, uh, but that's been our experience. I, I'm not, I haven't really reflected a lot on why it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always, you know. Uh, but prosecutors who, hmm, you know, are not deeply rooted in this uh, tough on crime um, um, uh, way. Of, of of doing their job, uh, but to have a heart, you know, and to have compassion for the children, and keep seeing them over and over again, you know, are, I find, have been quite open, uh, to restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So can you like zoom us in on, a, a circle, like let's okay. you know, and, and and actually talk through, what it would what it looks like. It's so hard.
0: I mean, how do do you explain how the sun feels, you know, when it caresses your back? Mm. Or how do do you explain what it's like when a child is, you know, laughing? It's it's something that you really have to experience in many ways. And I got so frustrated once um, from trying to explain what happens in a circle that I said, we need to just make a video. And instead of me trying to tell people what happens, we'll show them what happens. So there are a series of videos online. Great. Uh, that's said, online. Okay. oh, so uh, you can just type in "welcome and reentry circle" and a, a wonderful YouTube video will come up, or great. you can type in "community building circle," um, and probably the top two uh, on the list will will get you uh, to two uh, really great videos. Great. That said, um, so. The circle, first of all, is and restorative justice as well, uh, is based on uh, indigenous foundational indigenous insights, uh, and particularly the insight that um, we are all related, we're all one. Uh, in in Lakesh, which is the Mayan uh, expression, is "I am the other you," um, and Mitaki Oyasin is the Lakota Sioux we are all family, we are all relatives. And in, in African uh, traditions, it's ubuntu. I am because we are, and we are because I am. Or I am who I am through my relationship with other humans, and all uh, of the inhabitants of the earth. So this fundamental interrelatedness, we're all, we all participate in this vast, um, limitless web of, of interrelatedness. That's the fundament the fundamental uh, teaching of restorative justice, and we say and restorative justice is only forty five years old as a movement, but in fact it's ancient. It's based on indigenous uh, uh, teachings. Um, so, um, when we move into a circle process, we experience a sense of connectedness if it's well facilitated, uh, even even across. Uh, uh, seemingly unbridgeable difference, uh, whether the difference is due to harm that's been caused or the difference is due to race or gender or gender expression or age. Uh, we intentionally create this space um, where we can experience that sense of oneness, that sense of connection. And it means that when we sit in circle, it, it, it's... The circle is well-formed, first of all. It's not going to be, you know, uh, uh, it's not going to be, what, an oval. It's not going to be jagged. You know, we're not going to have a big opening. We have, as much as possible, a beautiful geometric uh, circle. And we don't have tables or any furniture separating us. That's really, really important uh, because that... Those are barriers, and we want to remove all barriers, whether they're metaphorical barriers or physical barriers. Um, And uh, we use a talking piece. Um, And the talking piece can be any item of significance. Whoever's holding the talking piece is the only one that gets to talk, and they get to talk with respect and from the heart. Everybody else gets to listen. So it's deep talking and deep listening. Even people who normally don't like to speak in front of groups, come alive you know, in these spaces, and the talking piece really helps with that. I mean, you can also pass. There's no coercion in restorative justice. And we, that's one element, um, the talking piece. Um, ceremony is another element. Uh, we start, we bookend with ceremony, we start with the ceremony, we end with the ceremony. And the ceremony doesn't have to be anything elaborate. It can be something as simple as just being silent for one minute or doing a breathing exercise you know, for two minutes, or singing in, in a Negro spiritual, or depending on the people in the group, a prayer. There's something that marks the space that we're about to enter. is a very special one at a time where we will be able to connect with one another in ways that we ordinarily don't get a chance to do. And then we have the circle keeper. That's the third element of the circle. The circle keeper um, doesn't run the circle but creates a space where the circle can run itself. The circle keeper is not like a Western style facilitator who comes in with her agenda and scratches everything out and has very specific outcomes for the meeting. Uh, no. The circle keeper creates a space where everyone feels safe, everyone feels able to access their best selves and their wisdom um, and their voice. Um, That's the third element, the the circle keeper. The fourth element is values. We start every circle early on um, deciding on shared values. We all select a value that we need to be honored in order to be able to bring forth our best selves in the circle. And then we write it down on something and put it in the center of the circle. And then everybody does that. And then we all agree by consensus on those values. Or there may be some questions and maybe one is missing but we have a values foundation before we get, this is all the stuff, this is what you do before we get to the discussion. And then consensus, um, all decisions are made by consensus, that's an element. All of those elements will create a space where, where people feel deeply connected, uh, where, Uh, people can bring forth their best selves, uh, where people can speak their truths, but in ways that don't cause further harm. Uh, So that's kind of the framework of the circle process. Um, And then, so we'll start, as I said, with the ceremony, then we'll do some introductions, and we might do, uh, you know... A more creative way, instead of saying, I'm Fania Davis, I'm from Oakland, California, and I'm the head of restorative justice. You know, maybe I'll talk to the person next to me. We'll be in a dyad, and she'll tell me some stories about herself, and I'll tell her some stories about myself, and she may introduce me to the group, and I will, things like that, you know. Uh, things that are fun, that um, involve interactivity and participation. Uh, Then we might do some trust-building exercises or icebreakers, they may be games uh, to get people loose and completely grounded, Um, then we'll do the values Um, and we often will share stories with our values, like my grandmother taught me the value of perseverance um, and um, she herself told me the story of how she ran away from home at the age of 14 because there was no high school um, uh, in her small town and she was so devoted to uh, education that she left her foster family, ran away at the age of of 14 just so that she could get her education. And so that's, um, that had a profound impact on my life as a child and so my value is perseverance. So everybody may share stories from their lives in connection with the values exercise. And there are usually other storytelling around so that we feel connected. Teachers have told us when they do these circles that I've worked with I've worked with my coworker Jane for uh, 10 years and I've learned more about her in these last two hours than I did in those entire 10 years. So we create an, an intentional space where we, um, through storytelling, through games, uh, through trust-building exercises, feel deeply connected, and then we move on. We spend half the meeting mm. really on um, connecting with one another, getting to know one another, and developing trust. Uh, and then it's so much easier when we get to the difficult issue that brought us together in the first place. Yeah. And then we end. You know, we discuss the issue, and we come up with a plan, and we end with a ceremony. We bookend with another ceremony. I have
1: two more questions because I, I know we're butting up on time. The first is, has there been any um, attempt to sort of study the effects of restorative justice or or what the outcomes are for a community when, when restorative justice replaces the sort of
0: traditional model of justice? Absolutely. I think restorative justice has been studied even more than criminal justice. Uh, there are lots of studies out there. Um, one that I would recommend is called restorative justice, the evidence, uh, Sherman and Strong. Uh, it talks about the fiscal savings of using restorative justice. It talks about the higher rates of satisfaction of both both persons causing harm and persons um, harmed. It talks about uh, the lower rates of recidivism in these processes um, and uh, a number of other uh, measures. Um, And then there are studies about schools. There's a whole bunch of studies about school applications. And typically, you'll find at least a 50% reduction in suspensions and expulsions. Uh, Typically, you'll also find a significant reduction in violence. Um, In in Oakland, at a couple of the uh, pilot projects that we did, violence was completely eliminated. Students stopped fighting. They learned how to talk through instead of fight through their differences. You'll also find, in, uh, increasingly, in the studies, and we have one that just came out of Oakland. Came out of Oakland, actually, it was a couple of years ago, that shows uh, not only uh, decreased uh, racial disparities, decreased suspensions, but also increased academic outcomes. We find that when young people feel that they are seen and they are heard, which happens in successfully facilitated circles, people feel they have a voice, and people feel that. Uh, they are seen so many so often so many of our youth, you know, who wear hoodies and sag, they're often seen as thugs and gangsters, and they feel that you know that, that that's those stereotyped uh, uh, views of them are not lost on them. But uh, when we brought a restorative justice program to a school like that that had a large number of juvenile justice involved youth. Um, uh, they began to feel a sense of belonging. They began to feel that they were being seen, they were being heard, their grades went way up, their test scores went up, their graduation rates went up as well.
1: Wow. So there's studies out there,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so the last question is packed, I guess. Um, yeah. But you've talked a little bit about, this, or alluded to, the fact that sort of Western ideology centers much more or quote-unquote Western ideology centers much more on the individual um, the adversarial justice system centers very much on the sort of individual pitted against individual and I wonder about um, your thoughts on the capacity for restorative justice to to really grow in, in scope and tend to, to butt up against those um, sort of rooted ideas. Yeah. Uh, I'll start there. Yeah. No,
0: I know, I, I know, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, um, as I said earlier, restorative justice invites a paradigm shift <clears throat> in the way that we think about and do justice. Um, you know, from a, a justice that, he, that harms to a justice that heals. But it's not just our justice system uh, that is punitive uh, in its essence, it's the way that we are and the world and the way we are present to one another and uh, present to the earth and present to our waters and present uh, um, uh, to, you know, the animals uh, and the plants. Uh, Our culture um, has has, uh, conditioned us to be present in ways that uh, are competitive, Uh, in ways that are distancing, uh, in ways that are ego-centered, and in ways that cause harm. And as I said earlier today in one of the talks, uh, we are very good at causing harm uh, in our culture. Harm pervades uh, our culture and our world. sort of necessary to
1: a competitive dynamic, right? And it's
0: a consequence, the ultimate consequence in some ways, you know. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it goes hand in hand uh, with a punitive, with a competitive, uh, with capitalism, really. Um, So, um, as I was saying earlier today, uh, you know, we're good at, we know how to harm ourselves, harm our partners and, and loved ones and harm our communities and um, harm our earth and our waters and our air. Um, and, um, and it's gotta stop, you know. We, will, we have no future um, uh, if we don't start learning how to heal, if we don't start learning how to reverse these cycles of harm. And restorative justice offers us tools to do that. And for me, so it's not just a theory of justice, it's really, it invites us to be present to one another in ways that bring healing and wholeness instead of in ways that bring um, separation and devastation and discord. Um, And I think that uh, restorative justice uh, can be a beacon that lights our way into Perilous future. Uh, in that sense, it offers tools for us to uh, be healers, no matter you know what our vocation and what our profession. Um, it offers us a toolkit. Um, you know, so, well, I think
1: that is a wonderful place to end it. Thank okay. you so much. I know this has been a busy day, but I have loved this conversation. I I feel like mm-hmm. do, I'm sure you get this feedback a lot. Like. Mm-hmm. My breath, like, slowed around, you know what I mean? I feel like I, I just got a free yoga class. Like I just So thank you. I really appreciate your thank taking you. the time. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. We've been getting more and more of those, and it's super helpful to help people find the show. Thank you to Brooke Hopkins and Anna White for helping to produce this. And thank you to Poddington Bear for producing our theme music. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, suggestions, please feel free to email us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.